sustainability is more like a baking a cake than it is about icing a cake. And it's got all these layers in it, right? And it's got the cherry on top. And the solar panels are kind of like the cherry on top. All of the other layers are other strategies. So lower embodied carbon concrete, uh, mass timber, electric systems, like all of these other strategies that we can use to make our buildings more sustainable. It's not just about like a one kind of solution. And that... This is the Mass Timber Group Show. I'm Nick. And I'm Brady, and we talk to sustainable building experts. Today, we caught up with Stephen Beerstaker, an associate with ThinkSpace Architecture and a leading mass timber design firm in the education space. Stephen's an expert on embodied and operational carbon. His mission is to elevate the AEC industry by simplifying carbon and architecture for everyone to understand and to motivate other architects to design better buildings. But before we jump in, if you want to learn more about building multifamily mass timber buildings and meet other teams doing the same, we're hosting the second annual Mass Timber Group Summit this August in Denver. We've got 30 plus sessions, three amazing networking parties, and building tours of the coolest projects in Denver. Check out the link in the show notes below for more info. And if you like these podcasts, subscribing to the channel is the biggest compliment you can give us. It helps us book incredible guests like Steven and brings more mass timber awareness to the rest of the world. So with that, Let's get into it. I like to tell the story about how I got into architecture because uh, it's one that's not really expected. Like when I was in high school, I went through the kind of classic careers course and they were like, yeah, you're probably set to be an architect. You're good at art and math and the kind of classic thing. And then when I started applying to school, I started getting rejected like left, right, and center. Uh, mostly just because I had, I had no idea what architecture was about. Like I thought that's what school was for. But when you get in, try to get into school, they think you should already know a bunch about it. So I kind of joke that I like almost quit architecture before I even started architecture. Um, and then eventually, you know, a school accepted me and, and the rest is kind of history. But I like to tell that story because a lot of people um, that I talk to are students or younger. They think that if there's bumps along the path that it's, uh, they shouldn't kind of pursue that. So after school, I moved out to Vancouver, where I am now. My wife's from out here. And uh, I've worked at kind of a few boutique firms here. And now I landed at, at ThinkSpace, where we um, focus on sustainability, mass timber, um, educational facilities, and really came here because I wanted to make sustainability more a part of my practice. Uh, and the places I was at before just wasn't a priority. So that's kind of where I am at right now. And why sustainability? Like what prompted your interest in that? Totally. Yeah. Like in school, I, I became kind of a personal passion of mine. Uh, the school that I attended, Ryerson, which is now uh, Toronto Metropolitan uh, University, which is a mouthful. Uh, we had quite a few courses in that too, in, in building science. And, and there was quite a bit of interest in that originally kind of piqued my interest. And the more I learned and read about it, um, I kind of just saw a way of doing architecture that was made sense. It just made a lot of sense to me. Uh, and then once I got into the industry, in my head, I kind of thought more people did it that way. And then I realized, well, no, actually the, the mighty dollar rules and uh, whatever's cheapest uh, gets done. So that's where it kind of prompted me that, you know, maybe I need to make, take some action myself to, to get where I want to be in this, in this field. Did you do anything to get where you wanted to be? Maybe that other young aspiring architects or even older architects, they want to get into a different company or they want to get into mass timber or the sustainability space. Did you kind of 
wedge your way in and just kind of started asking people or how did you land uh, in the right place? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And it, a lot of people will tell you this, um, that it was luck in, in many ways because I got fired. That's actually what... Hey, we're going to get back to the podcast in just a second. But first, I have a question for you. Are you somebody looking to build a mass timber project? If the answer is yes, then you need to put together an experienced team. Our partners at Cornerstone Timber Frames are leaders in heavy timber construction and have 30 plus years of experience, which means you can trust them to get the job done right. They collaborate with Nordic Structures to bring you the highest quality FSC certified mass timber available. They also have some of the most advanced fabrication technology in the industry, so your project goes up smoothly without costly on-site modification or delays. That means they have the experience, network, and technology to make your next mass timber project a success. Learn more about Cornerstone Timber Frames by clicking the link in the show notes below. Kind of prompted the change because I kind of been thinking about it, but it was like, ah, you know, I have a decent job where I'm at and like I can manage projects and do all this stuff. And I probably wouldn't get that somewhere else. That was kind of the thought. COVID comes along and it's like, hey, you're fired. <laughs> so then it was like, oh, I guess I like this is my opportunity to find something that I really want. And then um, basically I had kind of searched the internet and, and found this firm that, that I thought aligned really well with my vision. And I basically called them every week for like a couple months. Like, do you have a job yet? Do you have a job? Yet? So certainly persistence if you find what you're looking for. Um, but I guess the other side of that is, is while I was kind of ready to make that transition, I was doing a lot of studying. So I was just listening to podcasts like this one and reading books and doing what I could to increase my own knowledge. Um, so that when the opportunity came up, I was ready for it. And, and that kind of definitely saw some fruit when I started that thing space. What would you say to the architect that's in your similar shoes? Maybe they got laid off. Maybe they've been fired. Maybe they're just looking for a change. So you talked about going out and learning and educating yourself. But is there anything that you brought to the table that your current firm was like, wow, this guy really did X and that's why we like him? Yeah, totally. I mean, the classic thing you'll see from architects is like you bring a portfolio and you show your kind of design skills. The reality when you're on the other side of the table is being kind of a self-motivated person, uh, being someone who's willing to take initiative uh, that goes such a long way and, and you'd be shocked at how many people don't have that. Um, so I think being able to demonstrate that and say, Hey, I'm willing to go the extra mile when people don't ask me, uh, makes all the difference. That's probably in any industry, but, uh, certainly as an architect, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And so you're with ThinkSpace right now. Like what, what does ThinkSpace focus on? Like what drew you to that? Yeah. Um, to be honest, it was really one building. It was a mass timber building. Um, you can see it on our website. It's, it's a post-secondary building, um, at Trinity Western University here in, in British Columbia. And it's got this really great, um, wood atrium that kind of goes through the whole thing. That was what really drew me initially. Then I kind of did my research and there was a couple partners there that, um, I thought, you know, Hey, 20 years, like that's what I want to be. So why don't I try and align myself with that for, um, then, you know, you kind of do a bit more research and you find out what they're about. And, and that's when I kind of realized the values all aligned, um, really well. And then, so you mentioned that first project that you talked about was a post-secondary institution, but ThinkSpace in general is very focused on the educational sphere or building typology. What are you guys doing right now with education, but specifically with mass timber in your area? Yeah, totally. Like, um, the other side that I didn't mention to that is my wife's an educator. She, she teaches, um, fourth grade. Um, she did her master's in education. And, um, so education in general was kind of 
bit of a passion of mine that I was like, hey, it'd be cool to kind of align those interests in, in our family. And uh, so what we're doing right now, like we do some other stuff too. We do healthcare and um, we do commercial work. We do quite a bit of different sector work. But uh, the interesting thing about education sector is what's going on with Mass Timber. Um, so the, the, the BC government has a, has a real push to, to supply local wood. Uh, and to do that through our schools. And we actually authored a report uh, a couple of years ago called Wood Use in Schools in British Columbia, where we kind of walk through some of the key projects. Um, one of the really interesting projects we're doing right now is out in, in Langford on Vancouver Island. Uh, and that's a fully mass timber. That's our first. Most of them have been kind of some form of a hybrid mass timber. Um, this one's the first. It's four stories uh, and it's full kind of CLT glue lamb mass timber, which we're, we're really excited about. You have a lot of mass timber projects that are in the pipeline, in the works, and getting built. I'm looking at the University of Fraser Valley Dining Hall edition. Really, really cool. Uh, you know, beautiful, big, has a really great presence. Will you, will you or originally in the beginning know what mass timber producer or supplier you're already working with? And then you kind of dance around the design first, or do you plug and play, you know, all the mass timber producers across Canada. And then even like, do you, do you also ever, you know, jump the border and go and even think about kind of working with a U.S. supplier or is that more or less kind of forbidden fruit there? Yeah. I mean, no, I definitely not. It's funny you say that because actually that project, that Trinity Western project that I was mentioning earlier, they actually looked at sourcing wood from Europe uh, on that project. Didn't, didn't happen because of COVID supply chains, but um, I mean, typically we're working with our, design engineers originally and and they're designing the system to kind of meet the typical standards of a couple different um different suppliers and uh because that generally gets decided tender time um who's actually supplying the wood for it so uh it is it's it's interesting because i'm still learning a lot about that and i was talking to a couple of my structural engineering friends um the other day about this and and how that transition from the engineer drawings which are a little bit looser they don't have that mass timber detail uh, that gets transitioned into the shop drawing process uh, where you're getting a lot more of that mass timber detail and these different shops have different ways of doing things different manufacturing processes and how to better um, align the design drawings with what's actually going to get fabricated because that can be quite a kind of sticky point um, at that kind of transition point so after working on a few different mass timber projects, what have you seen kind of be like common mistakes or things that designers that are new to mass timber uh, make repetitively that maybe uh, over engineers connections or details or things like that? Like what can people do to be more efficient at designing mass timber buildings? Yeah, I mean, definitely setting up the grid, like the structural grid is something different than you would do on a steel or concrete building, like making sure you got your structural engineer on board early. Um, and working with them to understand, you know, where are your, where are your grids going? Um, what's that kind of standard grid? Cause architects, a lot of times they're in a rhythm, right? It's like I've designed steel buildings for 30 years. You know, your grids, you know, you roughly where everything's going to go. Mass timber is different, different um, approach and uh, important to have your structural gear on board. Another big one we've run into is about municipalities and, and the code requirements. So, um, for example, a lot of these buildings are non-combustible wood. Uh, and we expose all the wood in the building, um, which isn't technically allowed by the building code. Uh, so each municipality, you're, you have to work with very early on to make sure that they're basically okay with doing mass timber and what they're going to require. So we've had several kind of uh, situations on buildings where um, a municipality will 
request, let's say, bigger beams and columns um, to allow for that additional chart, even though we've gone through the testing and our engineer has made them big enough to char, they're just not familiar with it and they're concerned. So they're just like, ah, just add a little bit more thickness, which has a huge impact on the design of the building. Um, so making sure that you're in that um, door really early is super important. Maybe the last thing I'll mention is, is just about uh, protection on site, because that's something it's not right in the wheelhouse of the architect, but it's something that we're directly involved with or indirectly involved with, um, because what we see a lot is contractors not properly preparing or not preparing, but protecting the mass timber during construction. And here it's, it rains for like, you know, 60 days straight or something in the winter. Uh, and if those mass timber beams and everything get too wet or wet at all during the construction process, you can have months of delay just from drying that stuff out. So making sure the contractor is aware of the, um, importance of keeping all that stuff dry is really critical. Yeah, there's a lot of different nuances that people that are not exposed to working with mass timber, there's kind of like, a, there's a little bit of a learning curve, right? It's not anything yep. crazy or insurmountable, but, but there, there are things that need to be done differently. One of the things that you talked about a couple of questions ago was you talked about there's some incentives for educational buildings uh, in BC to be built with mass timber, but then also that there were some challenges from local code, code officials or zoning um, about integrating those. Can you tell us a little bit about what the incentives are to build mass timber and then maybe how those local municipalities are plugging into that? Yeah, totally. So there's basically some general mandates that are kind of like trying to push to buy clean products. Um, but then what the Ministry of Education has done, and they're the ones that fund elementary and high schools in, in British Columbia, is when we go through the, the definition stage, like the feasibility stage for school projects, required to do mass timber options. Um, and what that does is it, it puts it there at the table instead of it maybe getting ignored. Um, and then basically the ministry kind of chooses um, which which get funded. And we give arguments arguments for why certain options might be better than others. One of those is embodied carbon. So we don't track and measure the embodied carbon of our schools typically. Like that's not a mandated requirement. Uh, but we do know that wood is better. Um, so we we make sure to kind of put that in there from a biophilic, from a feeling point of view in an education space. You really can't compare with with the wood that's in there. So there's a few things that we say, you know, these are the benefits. And uh, then basically the ministry um, who really values some of those things um, can fund. So that's typically typically what we're seeing. I don't know why it took me so long to figure out what char was, but could you kind of speak to a little bit of exactly what that is? Yeah. How to building, you know, just totally. kind of give a basic idea. Yeah, that, that's a great great point and i oftentimes just kind of throw it out there and then people are like what what are you talking about um like the way that buildings are designed is if they're too big for example then they need to be non-combustible there's a bunch of different rules for when a building can be combustible which basically means the structural material can be wood or it has to be concrete um, or it has to be fire rated steel kind of a thing um and that oftentimes is like public buildings so public buildings would have to be non-combustible which means they'd have to be fire rated so wood, as you know, is combustible. Now, where mass timber comes in, where it's different than just like stick frame wood, studs and, and all of that, is that it has mass. So I like to use the analogy is, you know, if you go camping and you take your, your lighter to a log, you know, you're going to be sitting there all night long, right? And that's a mass timber beam. It's, it's not something that um, 
will, first of all, easily ignite because it's got that structural mass. It's also, if you put a log into a fire, and this is where the char rating comes in, it can burn for quite a significant amount of time. And when you actually pick up the log, the log doesn't just fall apart. It's still got the structural core in it. So what actually happens on the engineering side is the engineers will calculate the minimum um, structural requirement from a seismic and gravity load perspective to get the size of the beam. Then we figure out, okay, what's the rating? And then you determine how thick the char is. Now, what people need to remember is that this, the building cone isn't intended to um, protect buildings from ever burning down. They protect people from getting out before they fall down, right? So that's really what the, even in a steel belt, right? It's not about keeping the building up forever. If that thing catches on fire, it'll have a one or two hour rating so that the structure stays intact until everyone can get out. That's really the purpose of the code. Um, and that's what that char rating does. It says, we're going to keep the, the structural beams at their gravity capacity until X amount of time. I'm glad you laid that out because if you're not in the know with mass timber, you just consider it like a, just, you know, kindling or, mm -hmm. you know, a box of matches where it just ignites immediately. And it's not really about that at all. It's about the fire rating of how long that it lasts structurally. So you can get to your, get to freedom or get to safety. It's the things inside the building, like your bed, your, yeah. you know, the chair over there, or, you know, the cereal box or whatever that, that actually engulfs in fire. And, and the, the, you know, if you take a little bit deeper of a look at what is fire. So funny enough, I, I was, uh, um, I'm looking at what's called the fire tetrahedron mm -hmm. just to make sure I was like looking this up correctly. You need oxygen, heat and fuel to create fire. And then you need a, uh, what a chemical reaction. So a spark. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of mass timber, there's absolutely no oxygen on the inside. Yeah. And so that char layer just takes hours and hours and hours for it to barely, you know, kind of inch its way in. And then it creates that, that insulation. So totally. this, uh, I wanted to dig into that deeper because people think that, oh, it's wooden. This thing is just going to go up. It's like, you know, I don't know if you know about steel, but it doesn't really last that long well, under a real high fire load either. That's the, that's the really interesting part is it's also about the type of failure that's there, right? Like steel, when it melts, I mean, it, it's like, boom, right? It's, it's, it's gone. Wood doesn't really act that way. It's, it's a little more time. It's time delayed. It's, 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 I forget what the actual term is, ductile versus, um, like instant failure, but, um, and I'm not a structural engineer, but the cool thing is, is that this is how nature meant it to be, right? Like when you, when you look through forest fires, the older trees that can build, that can still survive through, uh, a forest fire. They are there because they've done that, that, that charring is designed as a protection and we're kind of basically doing the same thing in buildings, which is, which is really cool. And so there's, there's two aspects to this mass timber thing. So there's the, what can it do structurally, aesthetically, um, biophilically, and we can dive into like the benefits for learning environments, uh, all day. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. But then on the other side that you talked about when you're, especially when you're talking and presenting, um, to these authorities is the carbon benefits, but specifically the embodied carbon benefits. And I know carbon is a big passion of yours and you write as the carbon architect on LinkedIn and I follow you. Everybody else should too. If, if they're interested in how embodied and operational carbon play into designing buildings, like you guys got to be following Steven because he puts out absolutely fantastic content. And my question for you is why did you start doing that? Because you have a, a really large presence 
and you reach a lot of people with your message. Like, how did you get into that? Yeah, no, good question. I mean, part of it was during that transition when I got laid off and I was wanting to uh, do more and learn more. And I thought, you know, this is a great way to force myself to learn. Basically, is if I write about this stuff, I'm going to have to learn about it. Um, The other side of it was that as an architect, what you find is that projects are so slow that you you may design a building today, but you might be working on construction documents for the next year. So you, you're not getting this kind of like quick cycle of learn, um, at the, the same, learning the same things because you don't do that process again for another year. So part of it was, again, like that repetitive um, kind of thing as well as, hey, I want to research this. I want to learn about this. Um, why don't I start writing? And that really became an avenue not only to share, but also to learn. Um, so really a lot of the cool thing about LinkedIn is that I'm also learning from a ton of people on the platform, right? Like even when you guys are commenting on posts or whatever, it's like, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Or, um, it's just a really great place for all of the people who are in this kind of area to, um, learn from each other. What posts have gone viral, you know, you know, what kind of caught wind and, and what was the reason? Why do you think it did go viral? Yeah. It's funny. Like there's one, um, there's one really easy way to go viral is to make something very controversial. Now, I'm not a controversial kind of guy. Like, I'm a Canadian, first of all, so I'm really trying to make people happy generally. Plus, it's kind of my personality a little bit. But um, I, I posted a post a few months ago that was about Passive House. And the Passive House community is super passionate about sustainability. And um, what, it, what it happened is that it got likes from both sides of the camp. Um, people who are totally against and people who are very for it. Uh, so then you get a really viral moment. Um, a recent one is, um, I, I like this post that I've created, uh, it's a little more relevant to the kind of mass timber world is about how to design sustainable buildings. A lot of times when I talk to people, especially the public, um, people who are not in this industry, they think, oh, you know, slaps solar panels on the roof and, and you know, you've got a solution. Uh, and what I have to explain to them is sustainability is more like a baking a cake than it is about, uh, icing a cake basically. So the post that I had was just about this picture of a cake and it's got all these layers in it, right? And it's got the cherry on top and the solar panels are kind of like the cherry on top and all of the other layers are other strategies. So lower embodied carbon concrete, uh, mass timber, electric systems, like all of these other strategies that we can use to make our buildings more sustainable. It's not just about like a one kind of solution. And that, that one got a lot of resonation because it's true. Um, really. So a lot of people kind of reacted to that. Yeah. I I think using those analogies like that is a fantastic way to illustrate the points that you're making Mm -hmm. because you can have an, a astronomically high embodied carbon building, and then you put some solar panels on it and you, and you call it green, but you're like, yeah, well, you know, it could be a, um, a sour grape flavored cake with, you know, a perfectly tasty cherry on top. And it's not quite the same. Nobody's, nobody wants to eat that cake. Totally. Um, but the same thing can also be said uh, for some of those cake layers, right? And so just because you have a mass timber cake layer in there doesn't mean it's, you know, delicious vanilla or chocolate. Like it could still be sour grapes depending on how it comes out. Right. There's a lot of conversations that you brought up about, you know, is wood good just by itself? Can you expand a little bit on why you need to uh, peel back the layers on that conversation just a bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. And one of the things I see as the kind of sustainability lead in our office is that 
I talked to a lot of different architects in our office about like, hey, what are you guys doing on this project? What are your goals? And a lot of times that's the answer I get is, oh, we did mass timber. And then it's like, uh, okay, anything else? Did you, you know? And um, one of the dangers with that is we actually, um, we recently did a life cycle assessment on one of our projects and it was mass timber and it came back like the structural system was fantastic. It was like really low embodied carbon. We had reused a bunch of materials on the project. So it, it, it offset a lot of um, some of the structural carbon. Um, but what happened is our architectural team didn't really consider that. And so we had a bunch of aluminum on the facade and there was other, um, other issues. And it turns out that a lot of the good benefits that we had done with the mass timber and the saving the concrete were kind of offset by the negatives we had done in another area because we had just kind of assumed that because it was mass timber, it was, it was good, which that part of it was, but we had neglected others parts. So I think that's one of the avenues of um, this conversation that we need to make sure we're not just assuming things are good because they're wood, uh, but we're looking a little bit deeper than that. Did you find anything else in the case study that stuck out? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the avenues that I'm really pushing in our office to do more because we don't really do it is this idea of whole life curve. So we have these, and just to maybe explain for people who don't know what that means, um, the emissions on a building or in a building come from two sources. So there's operational carbon and embodied carbon. Operational carbon is from operating the building. So, you know, you need to burn uh, natural gas to heat your building. You're off gassing greenhouse gases. You need to use electricity to run your computer. Those are being produced. Who knows? They might be burning coal. They might be using solar panels. That also has emissions factors. Those are kind of the operational emissions. Then you've, you've got the embodied emissions. I'm on the other side. And oftentimes we kind of split them apart. Uh, we deal with one or the other. And for the, for a long time, we've really been looking at operational stuff. So energy use, uh, trying to reduce that as much as possible. But what we are finding is that we are increasing the embodied carbon to reduce the operational carbon. And it's, we're actually increasing the total whole life carbon in that process. So in this project, specifically in this case study, we had a bunch of um, sunshades, which are great. And that's what you get taught in school, you know, shade your building. Well, we're in Vancouver. We don't have a ton of hot weather. We have some, but sunshades are made of aluminum. So they have really high embodied carbon. So you're saving energy. And there's other factors here too. There's comfort, there's glare. There's other things you need to protect against, not just a carbon conversation. But if you don't look at both sides of that equation and say, hey, are we doing more damage by doing this than than not, then you're kind of just looking like a bit of tunnel vision. So we're trying to open that conversation up, but it's really tough because it's always been one way and it's hard to think about the other side of the equation. Yeah, I I think I might have got this from one of your posts. If not, I apologize. But uh, I read somewhere that, you know, the best building from a carbon perspective is one that already exists, mm. right? And so if, if you can reuse a building, that's fantastic. But we all know that as populations grow, as as we shift and we evolve as a society, like we're going to need more buildings. So there are going to be more being built. There's going to be designers designing those buildings. What are some of the low hanging fruits from both an operational and an embodied carbon standpoint that you think designers should be aware of? Yeah, that's a good, a good point. And, um, it's yes, funny when you say that, because a lot of that commentary comes out of Europe where they're like, we just need to use the buildings. We have them looking around like, we don't have any buildings here that are like older than Vancouver itself is like 200 years old. So 
uh, we don't have that building stock. But yeah, I mean, the classic ones you hear, which are true, is like electrification is really important. There are still dirty grids out there. Um, but generally, electrification is a decarbonization strategy, mostly because electric systems are more efficient. So you have to use less energy. Um, this is going to sound, you know, trivial, but passive strategies for heating, cooling buildings, like we need to really just step back and think about what a building is and how that relates to the exterior environment. And that's something that architects always used to do. But the dawn of air conditioning and heating systems and cheap fuel really is what it was, has changed that. So I think stepping right back, I guess that's not to answer your question. That's not really low hanging fruit. Um, but it is something that I think is, is really, um, really kind of important. Generally in buildings embody carbon side, structural and insulation are your biggest, your biggest contributors. Um, so focusing on using less material structurally, which generally is cheaper. So it's a win-win. Um, and finding insulations that are better, like XPS insulations generally are terrible. Um, rock walls are better. Wood fibers even better. Celluloses and straw are even better. So, looking at some of those really high emitters um, are are kind of easy first steps, I guess, to to doing better. Got it. Yeah, those those are great tips for anybody that's designing buildings, or especially as a developer owner perspective, because Nick and I aren't architects, we're not engineers, but we are developer owners, right? And sometimes, like at the end of the day, like it's got a pencil, it's got to make sense financially, otherwise it doesn't get built. But outside of that, like a lot of the detailed nuances like what insulation are we using what cladding are we using like what structural system are we using oftentimes like we're building a building to serve a purpose whether that's residential multifamily, office and whatever it is yeah um and it's i find that at least in my personal experience whatever the design or the architect team brings back to me i'm like oh that sounds awesome let's move forward i don't i don't peel back a bunch of layers and maybe sure. that's something that i need to work on um but bringing up those points and being aware of what those are can help you make a little bit more educated decisions for sure. So with all of this knowledge that you have, and obviously you're working with a great firm and they're doing a lot of mass timber buildings and you're educating the world on carbon, uh, outside of work, what are you focused on now? Like, what are you after next? Do you have any goals or things that you're trying to accomplish? Yeah. I mean, really one of the big things is, is about how to educate architects on designing differently. Like that's one thing I'm really passionate about and I'm still learning how to do it too. There's some great programs that are already out there and um, as you mentioned with my newsletter, I'm really at this point trying to grow so that I can bring more content and value to more architects. Um, cause there's, there's kind of this separation between architects in the know and out of the know. And there's like this really big divide. There's like these sustainable experts who are like really into it. And then there's other group of architects who be like, kind of heard of it, maybe you're interested in it, but they don't really know how. So I'm, I'm really interested in, and and trying to figure out how to help more architects um, design sustainable buildings, whether that's, you know, sourcing materials or learning what the right process is. So that's really the goal of the newsletter. Um, I forget what I, I, I usually set goals every year. Um, I think I wanted to grow to about 5,000 this year was my goal. Uh, we'll see if, usually I don't meet my goals because I set really high goals, <laughs> but uh, that's kind of the point of of setting setting the big goal is it, it does kind of motivate you to, to do better and to, to do that stuff. So did you say that there was a program or two that you went through that was really geared towards, you know, sustainability and carbon? And if so, what were those? 
Yeah, I, I haven't taken any, like other than my kind of education, I haven't taken any personally. I'm, I'm doing some work with um, the University of Pennsylvania. They're offering some kind of continuing education programs for architects that aren't like super onerous. You know, they're to the point they're for, they're kind of targeted and they're short and, and virtual. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm looking to do a better job of getting out there. Um, and I'm actually building, building a hub for architects, engineers, contractors to be able to better find that information, better find those courses. So that's another thing that I'm kind of working on getting out the pipeline is, is trying to consolidate a little bit more of that information. There's so many tools, educational programs that are out there that are just, you know, people aren't doing a good job of promoting them or they're not interested in promoting them. So I'm trying to kind of fill that void a little bit and help architects and engineers and contractors get a better handle on all that information. Besides mass timber focused conferences or summits and this type of thing, have you found any other, you know, conferences, events that are just very well done that are really geared around like that sustainable building type of thing? Yeah, good question. I mean, I haven't been to the new buildings institute conference. That one looks really interesting to me. One of the things I always struggle with is first of all, getting the time to go to these, um, because you know, I have a job <laughs> and, uh, that's always a struggle. It's also just the flying, right? Like talking about carbon reduction. It's like, do I fly to a conference? Has that worth the, um, the carbon that I have to expend to get there? Um, one of the ones here in, um, uh, Vancouver that just happened this last week when was, is BuildX, which it's not a super innovative conference, but they're starting to gear all of the classes towards embodied carbon because people in Vancouver have really been pushing for it. So what I typically tell people I work with, um, is to just look at the course content. Um, because a lot of times you can find some really good, um, things hidden, um, and look at the people who are teaching them. Uh, and you can, you can find some interesting stuff. There's also an embodied carbon. Um, conference coming in Toronto that I just heard about yesterday in, in June. So I'm hoping to be able to go to that while I'm already in, in Toronto visiting some family. So, yeah, I think anytime somebody can uh, find the education or the tools to better their trade, like you should absolutely take advantage of those. Totally. And then obviously like learning on demand is way more popular than it used to be. Like if you can get the information, you know, in front of your computer screen, like that's the quickest, easiest way to do it. But Sometimes you got to go out there and meet people and make those connections yep. uh, to make it work. But uh, outside of educational materials, conferences, anything like that, that you've attended, uh, would you say that people find or enter into the sustainability realm in any particular manner? Yeah, I mean, what I found is that, and it kind of goes back to that idea that there's, a, there's some architects who are really trained. Right. And then it becomes this silo of information that I, I'm not really a big supporter of because, um, that information then tends to get outsourced to those people. Um, what I'd like to see more of is more of that disseminated information amongst the team. Right. So everybody kind of can speak the language better. And that's one of the big goals of my newsletter is, and my writing on LinkedIn is to give everybody the tools and at least the, the lingo and the information to be able to carry that conversation. Not that everyone's an expert, but that it's a little bit more disseminated like that. Um, what I've, when I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of people are just like, oh, I was an architect and I just put my hand up and said, hey, I really want to do this. And then uh, started to take small steps. And one of the small steps that I found is it's shocking how much sustainability, I'll just put that in quotes, 
you can get on the project um, by just asking the right questions and looking at ways to do it. Because clients oftentimes aren't opposed to it. They just don't know that it's out there. They don't even know that picking that material isn't a great idea. As you said, right? It's architect suggested it. I said, yes. Um, so that's one of the things that really started to get me down that road is I started asking those questions and realizing, hey, this, I was picturing this project as not sustainable, but you shouldn't think about projects that are divided like that because then it, you don't make change on the projects you're working on. So I usually recommend to architects project you are on is the project you need to start making change on. And maybe you probably can't change the whole structural system, but you can start asking questions about materials, doing the right research and and doing that. So I would suggest small steps and putting up your hand. A lot of times at firms, um, they don't have people who are willing to take initiative on some of that stuff. And it's oftentimes welcomed, I think. Yeah, that's, that's really, really great advice. Um, before we ask our last question, where can people connect with you, learn more, more about your work, what you're doing with Carbon? For sure. So as you guys mentioned before, like LinkedIn is um, the best place to find me. Um, Stephen Beerstaker, um, probably in the show notes uh, and my newsletter as well. So as uh, Brady mentioned earlier, it's it's titled The Carbon Architect. Uh, it comes out every Tuesday, Tuesday morning. It's got um, some news about carbon. It's got a topic we kind of dive a little bit into and then it's got a project and a person that you can follow. Um, one of the things that's really passionate for me is, is that it's about people, right? It's about knowing people like, like Brady and Nick here, other people in the industry that are doing things and writing interesting things. And that's where we're going to all kind of learn and grow together. Uh, the other place you can look is at on thinkspace.ca. That's our, our company website and you can see all kind of mass type of projects we're working on. And, uh, we're working on trying to get more white papers out there with some actual, um, information to help other people who are looking to design, um, mass timber buildings. Yeah, fantastic. And so we'll definitely link everything that you just talked about down below. Um, your work as an architect, ThinkSpace, the newsletter, and, and definitely your LinkedIn profile. Everybody needs to be checking out those kind of things because they're incredibly valuable resources. So last question, if you could wave a magic wand, change anything you want about the architectural world, what would it be and why? Really good question. I think for me, um, architects that are curious is the number one thing. I see so many architects who just copy paste what they did before and don't ask the question. And I think curiosity is really the foundation of change and growth and not because it's forced, but because it's genuine interest, right? I, I told a story recently on my LinkedIn about my son. Um, and Nick, we were talking about our, we just had some kids this year. Um, they're so curious. It's like, it, it doesn't matter if it's a piece of garbage, he's putting it in his mouth. Now, there's a lack of knowledge, but it's because of the curiosity, right? It's like, what texture is this? I think we all in architects need more of that. And that's what's going to kind of prompt change and interest there. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. And congratulations to becoming an associate architect there at uh, Think Space. We're excited to see all of your mass timber projects coming down the pipeline. And, you know, um, where you're out there in the LinkedIn spaces as well. I, we, we appreciate the value that you bring and try and educate the world about carbon and mass timber. So thank you very much and we'll see you around, all right? Thanks guys. We really, I really appreciate it and had a really great conversation. 